Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today is a longtime, a lifelong cannabis enthusiast, an advocate, and a parent of one of the first medical card holders in the state of New York. Together with her husband and two kids, she moved from New York City to Holyoke, Massachusetts, where her leaving her Wall Street career behind to launch the high end, a vertically integrated cannabis company centered around organic living, soil cultivation, solventless extraction, and hospitality and homegrown driven retail experience. Helen Gomez, Andrews, thank you so much for being a guest today on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Hi there. Thank you so much for having me. It's of course, such an my, honor. Goodness. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. It's an honor to be able to talk to you. Look, let's talk a little bit about, about you before what your background was before you got into cannabis and, and then why you actually got into cannabis. Where are you originally from? I, um, I'm originally from the Philippines. Uh, I moved to New York City in 2001 um, for university. Uh, never left, I guess not until 2019 uh, when I moved up here, um, graduated from NYU, ended up working in finance uh, for about 13 years, um, got married, had kids in the city, um, and uh, sort of towards the end of my career in finance was, you know, feeling drawn to a more impactful existence, um, you know, uh, and also at the same time, uh, grappling with um, my daughter's epilepsy, um, uh, which she was diagnosed with at the age of five. Um, and, yeah. and, you know, watching the cannabis industry unfold and also at the same time learning about, um, cannabis as, as medicine uh, in pediatrics um, and just, you know, learning, learning all about that all at, all, all at once. Well, very interesting. Was your daughter diagnosed with adolescent onset epilepsy or full-blown epilepsy? So it's, uh, anyway, it's, it's pretty actually, tricky. I, I should tell you the reason why I asked that question is my daughter was diagnosed with adolescent onset epilepsy. We probably have shared a very similar journey in life. Um, how old is your daughter now first? She's 20, 13. 13. My daughter first started experiencing what they called, you know, mini malls around eight and a half, though they were not even really diagnosed uh, uh, correctly until about 13. And um, wow. so I wonder your, uh, your journey because, you know, my daughter didn't have her first grandma until she was around 13 and a half. And she actually had it while wow. she was in a sleep um, um, diagnostic center where they were looking at her to see if she had epilepsy. And boom, she had a grandma while she was there. And then from that point forth, you know, it, I tell you, it was, uh, it's been a hell of a journey. My daughter's now 37, 38 years old, 39. That's the only reason why I asked whether or not it was adolescent onset or full-blown epilepsy because there's lots of different things that will happen along her journey of life. Yeah, that's that's really incredible. Um, I'm so glad to hear that you know <laughs> she's 37 and and doing great. That's that's really inspiring for for us because there's so much that's still unknown about the brain. Um, and my daughter's epilepsy is um, basically called idiopathic, um, right. which they which means they don't know what what causes it. Um, when she was five, 
very similar to what you're describing these mini malls like barely even like we didn't even the way that she expressed what was happening to her was not at all what my husband and I knew to be seizures. Um, hearing noises, yeah. Please, please go ahead and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I want you to no. go ahead and explain this because I got a lot of viewers out there who are probably looking in right now trying to figure out what to do in their own home. Um, yeah. Like for us, we really, I, I tell you, they called her initial ones auras. I don't know if that was a term that you yes. heard used. Okay, right. She had these auras, which was really weird. As a matter of fact, um, the first time I even noticed one was we were we were swimming. I had a big pool, and she was walking up out of the pool, and she stopped on a step, and she just stopped like a statue. She stood there for like, oh, count of 30, 40, and when she, she popped out, and she started crying. And I was like, what's the matter? She goes, I don't know what's wrong. And she was only eight, so she didn't even understand how to describe what was going on. And we went through that for, I'm telling you, at least a year before I started to think, wait, there's something wrong here. This is not really normal adolescent behavior or child behavior. Because, I mean, and literally she would, it, I, I don't want to use the term freeze, but it was almost as if she would, and you could talk to her, and her eyes didn't move. She didn't move. Then all of a sudden she would like, she woke up like what? And I thought, oh, you're just playing a game. And then started to realize that this was a little bit more serious than we thought. And from like age nine to 11, we kept taking her to doctor after doctor after doctor after doctor. And no one could really explain what was going on because again, none of those symptoms manifest while she was in a doctor's office. So therefore they couldn't right. figure it out. And then unbeknownst to us and what we're starting to realize now is that at that time, eh, let's see, when was this? This was probably 2000. Mm, no, this was in the early 90s. So um, about 94, 95, motion pictures had just started doing a lot of that unbelievable, really strange lighting effects in the background. And I would notice that sometimes when she would be watching a movie, she would like freeze. And I thought, is the movie scaring her? But what we weren't understanding was that there were triggers from media that were really even causing some of these auras. So they're not causing the auras, but at least making yeah. them come out. And so it wasn't until about 13 that we then, after the first grand mall, that we realized, wait a minute, this child's got some issues. And they realized that it was adolescent onset epilepsy, which I will, you know, you and I can, at some point in time, we'll sit down and have a comparative conversation. But the nightmares did pursue. I mean, I'm telling you, this was a, yeah. a her age, 13 through literally almost 22. Um, you know, I wish I'd had a family that I could have talked to to look and see some of the things were coming down the pike because what you don't even recognize is that some of the medications that they put children on are medications mm -hmm. that children should not be on that cause yes. additional issues and problems. So, you know, I'm... Yes. I'm pray for you and your family because I don't want you to go through what we had to go through. My daughter literally, um, you know, became addicted to prescription medications and we didn't even know that. And then of course, as we tried to wean her off the prescription medications and she became addicted to, you know, other substances that she could find to see if she could alleviate what was going on inside of her. So it was tough. It was a tough period of time. She is, and I said 37, she's 38 years old. 
Um, Gabe is our first grandchild, um, and she's doing well, though she still has remnants. She still knows that it's back there. I mean, she hasn't had any grandma or she hasn't had any other series, but I can tell you, there's certain things, again, offline, we can chat about them if you like, but, you know, um, there's certain things that she really has to be very, very careful about. And you guys have to be careful about it. You would think, um, and I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not rambling, but, you know, little things like riding roller coasters, little things like right. riding, riding rides that wouldn't affect you and I. You know, I'll never forget um, in her mid-20s after we had gone through, you know, what I like to think is kind of like almost Helen back. And she was on the other side and starting to recover and, and feeling better about herself. You know, we got excited. And, um, you know, I used to be a big roller coaster enthusiast. And so was she. And I didn't even realize that I was helping to trigger some of her auras and some of her uh, seizures by taking her own roller coasters. And then we went to Las Vegas She's 27 years old and she just wanted to jump off that needle thing. She wanted to do that bungee thing off the needle. And I was like, okay, let's go do it. And we did it once. Perfect. She goes, I want to do it again. I was like, no, I don't think we should oh, do it again. And of course we do it again. Came down. She had not had a grandma for like six years. Boom. Right there in the middle of the hotel. She fell down and had a grandma because it just overwhelmed everything about her. So you know, there's little things that you can, you know, especially movies, fast moving things, uh, abrupt movements of her head and her equilibrium can trigger some of the, the auras and responses. And they don't even know sometimes that they're having one. So anyway, it's, if you ever want to chat offline, we can do that. Absolutely. But, yeah, sure. But go ahead. And you, can, you, were, you were explaining that, you know, the process of what started happening with your daughter. Yeah, well, first of all, I, I want to say you you said she gave you your first grandkid. Mm. And that is, I mean, that's that's the dream for us. I I know, you know, she she it, these are things that you just don't know at this age, like what they're going to be able to do, drive, go away, spend, you know, do a year abroad while you're at college. These are these are things that um, you know, we don't want to think about, but are are very real questions for parents of of kids with epilepsy. Um, and it's really encouraging uh, to hear that that these things, you know, <laughs> these things can happen. Um, very similar to what you described, um, she was having moments of we didn't know what was going on. Um, she was five. She was so little. She would just pause and, like you said, break down and cry because she didn't know what, what happened, what just happened. Um, and we thought, oh boy you know, is this anxiety? Are we so stressed out that, you know, we're transferring stress to our child? Um, and then, you know, a few months, a few months after we, it was, it was in the summer when it first happened. I think it was in, in June or July, we were out of the country, uh, visiting my husband's family in Ireland and it happened again. And we were at a carnival where they had one of those like spinny spiral things and you look at it and, um, you know, to a normal person, you might feel a little bit dizzy, but, but sort of it happened again. And, and we're like, oh gosh, this is unusual. Um, but by the end of our trip, the last day of our trip, she was having one of these episodes every hour or so every hour and a half, every two hours. And we were get, we got on the flight on the flight home. Um, 
She was having them every hour. You know, we landed in New York City. We called her pediatrician. You know, we brought her in the very next day and she presented this in front of him. Um, and he had no idea what what was happening. He was like, she seems fine. It was crushing, soul crushing. Here, here we are. We don't know what's going on. And, and the pediatrician says she's fine. But if you need to see a neurologist, here's a few. And and you you know what it's like in New York. You call a neurologist. It's like no November, or January, perhaps we can see you. Um, I'm you know I had to go back to work. My husband's with her. I'm at work, like googling pediatric neurologists. Like who can we see? Calling every single office that I can call. And finally, um, that afternoon, I don't know how we managed, but we got into somebody's office. Um, we had to go through the emergency room, and she sat in front of the doctor and had one of these you know she just closes her eyes and no one else has no idea what's going on but she closes her eyes she comes out of it she she says she's hearing noises and, and she cries a little bit and uh the doctor says that's a seizure um and then she gets admitted and um you know the overnight the eeg all of that and um and then you know overnight the doctor comes comes to me with a big thick book like a like a menu like he's a sommelier at a restaurant he says these are the meds that we give uh kids with epilepsy these and are I, the I, ones I, that i, I would I, recommend and i gotta jump in on that because i mean for any parent yeah. you think that you're listening to an to a person who's an expert but they're not and what's so crazy about these things is nobody knows they don't know, and the drugs that they put down in front of you are drugs that were designated for people 18 years and older. They were not designated for children. And even though they've gotten away with using them for children, you know, I think the PDR has even suggested you don't put children on those kinds of medications for long periods of time. So I went through that same thing, listening and thinking that the doctor knew what he was talking about and not realizing that they were doing nothing but drugging my child. But go ahead, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, it, this is that, it's, a, it's exactly that. I mean, one of <laughs> She went through like, she's on her like fifth or sixth medication now, but there was a time when, you know, when you're transitioning to one med, to another med, they want it to be a smooth transition. So they give your kids Xanax or Clonopin to ease. And you're like, hang on a second. My 40 year old friend takes that because she has severe, air, you know, fear of flying. Like, well, you know, it's just, it's, they don't know right. of course they're well-intentioned but but they really don't know um and when you talk about triggers like you know there are things that we've found to be triggers like we'll re reward our kids with junk food occasionally like if we're driving home somewhere and they've been great they love chick-fil-a we'll go to chick-fil-a and the next day you know i don't know it's been a while but she'll she'll have a seizure and um we've been very fortunate i'd say if that's the right word to use is that 99 percent of her seizures happen in her sleep so she wakes up i don't know if that's your experience too but she wakes up and comes into my room takes a deep breath gets on my lap and then has the seizure um which you know she's getting so much bigger now um we've been we've been very lucky that it hasn't really interrupted her 
school life. Um, but last weekend, she was at a soccer game and she started to have auras on the field. Um, and she's telling her coach she doesn't feel well. The coach doesn't know what that means. You know, he's a coach to a bunch of teenage girls. I don't feel well could mean a million things. Um, and she's able to to slow it down. Like she hasn't had a grand mal during the day, but she has pretty intense auras and they, they escalate. And, and then, you know, I don't generally, she has a cannabis oil regimen, uh, morning CBD oil, evenings THC oil and CBD oil. But when she has daytime auras, escalation of them, I give her one milliliter, a dropper of, of THC oil and within half an hour, 45 minutes, it's just completely washed away. Um, she, she, she feels great. She does you know, she's not high or, or cloudy. She just, you can tell just by looking at her that this, like the cloud of the auras has just, has just lifted from her. Um, but you know, it, cannabis has been really, really great, really helpful, has solved a lot of things, but it hasn't, it hasn't cured her. She still has seizures every few weeks. Well, let's back up for a second, because that must have been a tough decision. When, when did you make the decision? Well, first off, she's the first card carrying cannabis consumer. One of, one of, one of the first uh, cannabis card carrying consumers in the state of New York. Um, when did you make the decision to even try cannabis? What, I mean, you're, you're uh, not a Wall Street, you're a Wall Streeter and, you know, uh, uh, a person who, I'm not going to call conservative, but a person who literally, I wouldn't think would have looked at this as one of your first lines of defense. What triggered you and what made you think about cannabis? Was it the Sanjay Gupta special? Yeah, actually it was. I mean, I, I, I don't, what, you know, I've, sort of been a, a, a cannabis enthusiast uh, more years in my life than I haven't. Uh, definitely in college, you know, um, sampled a little bit in high school. I was I was no stranger to cannabis. It just never would have crossed my mind to give it to a child. Um, but a year before, maybe even two years before any of this happened, I did watch the Sanjay Gupta um, documentary. Um, and I learned a lot and, um, it was back when you still had to like DVR stuff. I guess you still do that now, but it was, it was different. Like you, you had only X capacity and I had, I had recorded it. Um, and I just remember two years later, like telling my husband, you have to watch it. It's gotta still be there. You, you have to, and, and thinking after I had looked at that menu, of drugs that that was being recommended um and it was so weird it was like these are the ones that i like these are the ones that my partner likes but you know have a gander and see if any speak to you i'm like are you, are you joking i have no idea what's happening it was hard it was terrifying um but then i remembered you know what i had learned um watching um um that documentary and and learning about charlotte figgy and you know May, may God bless her precious soul up in heaven right now. Um, I, I learned a lot about that and I asked the questions 
um, and the doctors didn't really know. I mean, this was 2016. No, 2015. 2015, they hadn't, they, they hadn't, I think they had just legalized medical, but they hadn't permitted it yet. It was still sort of, so I had asked about it and they, they didn't really know much about it. I had also heard that NYU was doing some research and, and ultimately, um, I reached out to neuro the pediatric neurology at NYU and, and transferred over there. Uh, but even at that point, it was, um, not only was there not enough information, I don't think there was, uh, or education, I don't think there was much of a desire by the neurologists to really dig into it and learn about it at the time. I'm sure it has changed, but. Yeah, there wasn't um, much of an understanding back then of the endocannabinoid system. There wasn't much of an understanding back then of all the research that had been done all over the world, answering some of the questions that a lot of doctors have in the United States, but they didn't bother trying to figure it out for themselves. I mean, there's a lot of research that's been out there that discusses seizures and seizure maladies and cannabis. Though we do know, and you you nailed it when you said it correctly, it's not the cure. It's not what's going to end all seizures, but it's something that is a tool that, like any other weapon in a quiver, it can be used sparingly, but when used the right way with children, there have been results. Now, I, I also understand from my own research is that, and, and the research I've done for myself, because I've utilized cannabis for my diagnosis of MS for my entire journey with MS. And there are times throughout that journey where my consumption of cannabis and the type of cannabis that I use has changed. And that will probably be something that you'll notice with your daughter. You know, like right now you were saying that, you know, I mean, you started off with trying, probably trying to use mostly only CBD, but realized that wasn't a big enough gun. So then you add a little THC and, oh, that was great. But then when you added too much THC, oh, my goodness, it doesn't work. Well, let's back off a little bit and add a little bit more CBD. So it is going to be kind of that, that, that I don't know what you want to call it. You got to just keep trying and keep trying and keep trying until you hit that sweet spot. And that sweet spot may work for three or four months. Then you may have to find a new sweet spot. Right. And, uh, you know, growth spurts. Uh, hormones, all Correct. of these things. And, uh, you know, also my daughter's not a guinea pig, right. but at the same time, we just don't know enough about epilepsy and, and you know, what cures epilepsy, what su suppresses. Um, and, and now there's a, a tremendous amount of research about the gut brain connection and diet and epilepsy. And, and, um, you know, there's just, there's a lot, there's still a lot to learn. And, and I'm, I'm hopeful though, that, um, doctors are more and more open to exploring other avenues, uh, you know, rather than just, you know, surgery, which is also pretty terrifying. Sure. Pretty terrifying. Now, you know, so you first initially tried to enter the medical cannabis market in New York, got your daughter a card, was able to give it to her, but then you decided to leave New York and move to Mass. And I, I know I'm probably jumping way far further because there was a lot of things that happened in between. Why don't you take us on that journey and tell us how you decided to, if I can't find what I want myself, I'll grow it myself and I'll find a place I can grow it in, right? Right, I mean, well, you know that at the time, um, not only, 
did the medical program prohibit home grow, but you had all of these multi-state operators basically lobbying the governor to continue prohibiting home grow. Um, so, and that's that's really important for us as as advocates as as we consider the cannabis the business side of cannabis is to continue supporting home grow and, and access to medicine. But right around the same time that I'm feeling quite an uninspired in my work life, um, managing our daughter's health, um, you know, states are legalizing left and right. We were considering um, moving out west, um, you know, and and having a go at the industry in that way. And um, sometime around, I think it was late 2017, um, after we had started attending, you know, grassroots industry networking events in, in the city, um, Massachusetts legalized. Um, and they were very welcoming. Unlike Colorado at the time, which you had to be a resident to participate in the industry, Massachusetts was open to non-residents. Um, and we began exploring that opportunity. Um, and initially, um, with my husband's background, who's my business partner now as well, his background in hospitality, um, the genesis of, of, of our business was originally a culinary one, um, you know, exploring, uh, you know, cannabis chocolates is really where it started. And then, learning about you know what's the main ingredient how do you get the main ingredient what's the cleanest way what's the most sustainable way what is whole plant medicine and of course being um all of uh, being infused by um our perspective on medical cannabis um led us down the path of of living soil cultivation and that's um really where we've built our foundation for our business, um, still, you know, pre-operational, but but working on it. Uh, we traded in our um, amazing little Brooklyn home for a sixty thousand square foot mill building in Holyoke, and have been working towards building our business here since twenty nineteen. Um, had a ton of momentum going into COVID, um, and you know, we're stalled quite a bit, but you know, have have picked up the pieces and are little by little, you know building, building and, and, and getting in there. Not only did COVID throw a monkey wrench into the industry, in some ways it helped the industry, but in other ways it hurt the industry because again, it became an essential service in lots of the states that have cannabis programs. Um, but then again, it also changed how you could actually deliver and distribute the product. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, now that we've come out of it, I think people are still, I mean, I, I, I see a pre-COVID cannabis world and a post-COVID cannabis world. I mean, you know, the pre-cannabis world, the pre-COVID cannabis world was one where cannabis was more of a shared experience. And then post-COVID, it's become more of an individualized experience where people, you don't see a lot of people sharing as much, you know, uh, uh, standing around smoking a joint together anymore. That's kind of stopped. Um, but, but then again, it hasn't stopped in some circles. Um, but it definitely threw a monkey branch into the industry, slowed down progress. The state of Massachusetts took off though. Um, you have lots of competition in Massachusetts. 
Yes, there is lots of competition in Massachusetts, um, but competition is good. And I think that the intent uh, behind the regulatory framework here was really one that was supportive of small independent business. Um, and you've seen just in the past year um, that some of these uh, massive behemoth uh, corporations that think that they can come into Massachusetts and um, churn out a product and undercut the price of, of everybody else on wholesale, think that they're just going to dominate and, and they haven't been able to. Uh, we've seen, seen some of those big businesses exit because um, no matter how much weed they can supply at the cheapest prices, Massachusetts residents just don't want it. I think there's a really great culture here uh, that supports small independent business. I think consumers really are more aware of the difference between um, a craft, a true craft cultivator, and um, you know a, a a tier ten indoor grow that has a craft line. Um, and I think that in Massachusetts, people really go out of their way to to learn the story of businesses to support small business. Um, and I think in the past year, uh, we've seen that a lot of these small businesses now are starting to to really thrive um so it's encouraging and um and competition is is good yeah i think competition is good also i really do um you know you kind of consider yourself a cannabis family refugee right a medical cannabis refugee yeah i um my our lawyer jokes that that we're cannabis refugees but but the truth is um you know, we, we kind of are, um, I, I hate to say it, but the, the compassionate care program in New York was insulting for patients. It was atrocious. You had very little choice of product. Um, you couldn't grow your own and the product that was available to you at dis at medical dispensaries was so expensive. Um, and, there just wasn't enough education either. Um, and coming up to, to Massachusetts and become becoming um, uh, medical card holders here, which had its own challenges. Like they make it incredibly hard um, for uh, uh, pedi pediatrics to, to get a medical card under the guise of safety, but actually it, it really doesn't work out in the way they intend. Um, but there's a tremendous amount of choice there's a tremendous amount of information. Um, you know, I, I know that it's been several years and things have evolved, but um, being able to choose not only um, who makes my tincture, who I'm buying it from, how they extract it. Is it ethanol, CO2, butane, avocado oil? Like there's so many, you know, there's, you get to choose. Um, you get to choose how the cannabis is grown that, that is then extracted into your tincture. Uh, so if, if you're um, a parent or a caregiver like me that really cares about um, how the plant is grown, how it's extracted, whole plant, soil, all of that, and, and the belief that, um, that certain cultivation methods result in better medicine, uh, Massachusetts had those options for us. That's great. Well, tell me a little bit about your company, The High End. 
Talk about it for a minute. So, um, yeah, we're uh, we're actually the the first company, uh, cannabis company in Massachusetts to be certified as both women and minority owned. That's something we're very proud of. Um, we are, uh, as I said, pre-operational and sort of inching our way forward, um, but uh, are very excited to hopefully soon um, build out a small garden with um, indoor living soil, uh, with an indoor living soil cultivation program and our uh, processing facility where we will start um, our processing or manufacturing with solventless uh, extraction methods. Clean right. ice water um, and uh, just, you know, very clean, very simple, very straightforward and, and uh, very transparent. We wanna be incredibly transparent about how, how we do everything from start to finish. And are you focusing more on tinctures or are you focusing on smokables or are you focusing on vapes? What are you, what are you focusing on? Well, we want to uh, introduce uh, a product to the market that um, has sort of a, a broad audience initially. Uh, we would love to do tinctures ultimately. Absolutely. That's very important to us. But um, our, our first uh, skews into the market will be um, uh, live, uh, live rosin uh, cartridges and um, they call them dabs. I like to call them dips. Um, but, but little concentrate jars. Mm -hmm. So you want to start with that first and are you going to be a, manuf a grower, a manufacturer, a processor, and then distribute through other dispensaries or will you open up your own? Um, a bit of both. Hopefully, uh, we do have a retail license, but, um, amazingly signed our lease on our retail space. Uh, two weeks before lockdown in 2020. Um, and so that has been incredibly challenging. And of course, uh, there's a, a lot of retail, a lot of competition, um, but we we still believe in our, um, our vision for retail. Uh, so that would be phase two, but, but absolutely hope to be on shelves of the many great um, independent retailers in, in Massachusetts and, and eventually, uh, open up a um, our retail and coffee shop sort of had the hospitality uh, component into it and and really focus on small brands, sun-grown flour, living soil flour, and uh, also find ways that we can uh, support home growers through what we sell in the shop as well. And you will, you, I, I, did I hear you say, you're, you're, are you looking for a consumption? Do you have a consumption license also? So our coffee shop concept isn't necessarily intended uh, to be social consumption. Um, it's just um, our our vision has always been to, you know, to sort of expand the experience, the the retail experience, and um, and uh, offer something other than just like popping into the shop to to get your cannabis. You know, you can go next door, maybe grab a cup of coffee, um, buy some accessories, some literature, have a sit down uh, to the extent that that can evolve into um, social consumption is, is something that we have in the back of our minds. Absolutely. Well, I think that probably goes hand in hand with making sure that the consumer not only buys a product, but also gets a little education about the product also, because I think you know that's one of the things that I've been highlighting 
for the last 10 years. I think this this industry has done a service to itself by sharing B2B information, but we've, we've done a disservice to ourselves is by sharing B2C information. We do not yeah. educate the consumer as much as we should be. And that's what we should be doing yeah. a lot more of. What do you think about that? I, I couldn't agree more. I think, you know, when we think about the sort of programming that we would have in the coffee shop, um, thinking also about building a cannabis friendly co-working space, um, having programming like, uh, you know, having our, our head grower come and, and do uh, an info session on what are companion plants and why is it so important to have companion plants in your grow or uh, have a nutritionist come and explain how you can integrate um, you know, minors, minor cannabinoids into your diet or, you know, things like that. Um, education is, it, I think it's improved. Um, but I think that consumers really like engage. I've seen, um, in, in many instances where that kind of programming really draws consumers in and, and consumers, customers, they, they like it, they appreciate it. They want to be more engaged, um, in that. And, and that's our, our hope. Is that yeah, I, I think that that's, that's on us as an industry. It's our responsibility to make sure that we provide those services to the consumer because I think, as you've said, I mean, I, I happen to be on shelves in multiple dispensaries in Massachusetts. As a matter of fact, I just signed a deal in Georgia where I'm, I, I'm involved with one of the uh, major uh, licensees in Georgia the only one that right now has contracts in independent pharmacies. So not only in Georgia can we sell the product in dispensaries, but we've got over 120 independent pharmacies all over the state that will be able to carry the products here within the next two months. I think we should be on shelves by January, hopefully. Um, looking forward that's to That's amazing. I just read about Georgia and the pharmacies. That's, that's huge. It's, it's that's totally a, huge. a whole new market. Whole new market, and it's whole new, you know, rather than having to fight the battle of where you put a dispensary and whether or not it gets approved, the pharmacist says, especially the independent pharmacist, has been here. They've been here for the last, you know, 60, 70 years. And a lot of those stores have been servicing the same demographic for the last 60 or 70 years. Well, why not allow their customers to have access to a viable product? These are people who already know how to. to you know, administer controlled substances. So this is just another controlled substance that they have to administer. I love that. And I love that it's, you know, independent, you know, often generational family run businesses. Um, it's, it's so important. I, I really believe um, if executed properly, the cannabis industry can change the way that we look at all types of business and how we um, can, you know, change other industries and, and really support small independent business. And I think, I think we're seeing a little bit of it, you know, two steps forward, maybe three steps back occasionally, right. but, yeah. but I'm hopeful. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's insane that we didn't even pass the safe banking act here this last go round, which was really ignorant on the part of our congressman. And now ain't nothing going to happen there until these fools figure out, how to settle their individual disputes with their own parties. But, um, you know, I think that's another thing that, that the industry has really been a little bit behind in doing. We've literally jumped out there trying our best to sell our products for the highest market cap that we could sell them for, for our businesses without thinking about the long term. 
We've been thinking about the short term, and the long term is something that has gotten away from this industry. Um, the amount of lobbying that used to take place is not going on anymore. And uh, unfortunately, as long as we have this breed of diehard buttheads in our Congress and Senate, we're going to be faced with this uphill battle for the next 10 to 15 years. There was a while back in, let's say, 2017, 18, and I thought, oh, well, you know, national change or a change at the national level would take place in the next three to four years. I'm not even betting on that for the next 10 years because we're not doing yeah. enough as an industry to educate those people in office to make sure they understand. Take a look at this. You know, you opened the dam and nobody got flooded as much as they thought. It, you legalize cannabis and oh, exactly. oh the sky is going to fall. It didn't fall. No. In fact, you know, you're seeing, um, you know, less drunk driving incidents and, and all sorts of and all sorts of other things. Um, but what you said about safe banking, I mean, it's it's the general public doesn't understand that um, you know the implications of safe banking and or you know sort of iterations of safe banking. But an M an MSO can get a traditional bank line of credit at six percent, um, but a small independent business cannot get an SBA loan. Um, and I think, you know, having SBA, having community foundations and CDFIs and sort of giving them the green light to, to support small business um, changes, uh, changes a lot. And, and you're right, lobbying is, is so important. Well, I think we're going to see, you know, as this diehard breed of generation, and I'm so, it's almost kind of a double-edged sword. I mean, though I'm disgusted by the you know blockade that's going on in our Congress and our Senate right now, you know, by some of these diehard politicians who don't give a damn about anything except for their own little fiefdom. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy that that's there because finally the public is starting to see this. The pub, the, the public is finally starting to say, "What do I pay these people to do? They ain't, they can't do nothing." So eventually yeah. we will get rid of some of them, and as we get rid of that generation. We will bring in a generation who understands that there's nothing wrong with cannabis and there hasn't been anything wrong with cannabis. Let's move this thing forward. What have been some of the other really difficult obstacles that you've had to face in launching this business? You know, access to capital has been the number one uh, barrier for us. Um, and I would consider ourselves, you know, pretty, pretty fortunate with with where we are positioned, you know, we own real estate, we have licenses, we have sort of a, a benefits to being sort of certified women and minority owned. Um, but access to capital continues to be very challenging, even for folks with collateral. Um, I don't know, you know, I am my story about access to capital is dime a dozen here in Massachusetts and elsewhere in the country. Um, I think there's so many, there's so many other, there's so many other obstacles uh, in the regulatory framework that small businesses also face. For example, um, if you're a delivery business, which um, in Massachusetts has been made exclusive for social equity um, business owners, uh, which is, which is a great thing for, you know, for the next at least two years. Um, those businesses, unlike any other state in the country that has a delivery license, uh, Massachusetts requires those operators 
to have two people in the car at all times. So not only do you have a business, um, not only do you have people who are starting, who are trying to start businesses in an environment where access to capital is very challenging, they now have uh, double payroll, double workers comp, double insurance, and it just doesn't work. You know, none there's many, many things like that. Yeah, none of which can be and written none off. None of it either. can be written off. None of it can be written off. Exactly. Um, you've got, um, you know, folks, cultivators who um, are, in my opinion, doing things the right way. Um, you know, you've got a, a ton of like organic regenerative outdoor farms. You've got a very small handful of indoor living soil cultivators who um, have, uh, who employ sustainable uh, farming practices, but when they go to test their product uh, in Massachusetts, um, they don't they don't distinguish between beneficial microbes and harmful pathogens. So if you have a, a healthy microbe on your plant, you're going to automatically fail um, unless you remediate. So these are other challenges that that small businesses face. They have to either um, buy a really expensive remediation machine, which is also not super desirable for the end consumer. Or in some cases, if you're a, a medical patient that um, is immunocompromised, it's very important for them to know that their, their flower has been remediated. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of common sense things and there's a lot of things like, sorry, not common sense regulations that that amplify the challenges, the costs for small business that that we can do away with, and everyone would still be fine and and safe. So, well, if people wanted to get more information about what you're doing, where would they go? We have a website. Uh, it's uh, thehighendcannabis.com. Um, it's sort of still coming soon, uh, but we have a lot in the works presently. Um, you know, very, very close to having shovels in the ground here in Holyoke to build out our uh, processing facility um, and and hopefully a small garden along with that. Um, hoping to, by the end of the year, um, launch a main vest uh, crowdfund. Um, and, you know, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. I, I love engaging with people about medical cannabis, about the business of cannabis and, and anything in between. Where are we, where do you see yourself in the next five years? In the next five years, um, my daughter will be graduating from high school um, and uh, going to college and, and that'll be my focus. Hopefully by then uh, we have a, a robust and healthy uh, garden uh, blossoming here in Holyoke with with a solid business and and perhaps uh, you know 280e is gone by then um, and because we're we're from New York uh, hopefully we have a a little bit of business going on in New York too we actually just opened and started our applications for for cultivation and manufacturing in New York so five years from now. Uh, hopefully have a successful up and running business and and can dedicate more time uh to you know my family and 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 other things super anything else you want to add 
Um, no, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful and honored for the opportunity to speak with you. Um, you know, it's, it's really remarkable how, you know, people connect over, over things. Um, epilepsy is not incredibly rare, but it's still not super common. You know, I don't really know any other parents, um, that have experienced what we're going through and, um, just, you know, meeting, meeting you and, and understanding, learning about your journey and, and hopefully connecting with some more parents and, and just helping one another learn more and get educated and, and find other, find other solutions. It's super important. And I'm really grateful for that. No, thank you so much. And look, one more time, throw out the stats so people know how to get hold of you. Um, the high www, um, dot the high end cannabis.com. There's a little uh, button in the top right corner where you can email me. You can also reach out to me on LinkedIn. So uh, Helen Gomez, Andrews, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Vlog Montel today. I look forward to meeting you. I spent some time. Matter of fact, I'll be in Mass next week doing a couple of pop-ups. Yeah, uh, hopefully. Hopefully we'll, maybe we get to meet next week. If you got some time. I, I hope so too. Yeah, that would be lovely. Absolutely. Well, thank you, you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing and Make sure everybody out there, thank you all so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.